Hello and welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast. Every week we're here trying to provide some kind of perspective on the events, but mostly on the technology which drives the energy transition. I'm Peter White. Um, I'm the CEO at Rethink. And as usual, I'm joined by our analysts, Harry Morgan. Hello. He covers wind and hydrogen. Our solar specialist, Andrew Swantonar. Hello. And our publisher, Simon Thompson. Hello. On the show today, we'll be discussing our new idea of annualised primary electricity. What is it? Exactly why have we written a report about it? We're also going to hear how the polysilicon market has become detached from the spot market, mostly by the placement of long-term polysilicon orders. And we want to put uh, a call out to all you listeners. Maybe you'd like to join us in an online discussion on how Europe can get itself unhooked from Russian gas. Harry has written a story uh, partly about that, uh, of how Germany believes it can um, use hydrogen to replace some of that reliance. To get us started, though, we're going to talk about annual primary electricity. Harry, what is it? I suppose it's our big report here at Rethink Energy, isn't it? So it's, uh, it basically combines our research across all areas. The main thrust of it really is is this big drive towards electrification and how while we'd expect to see sort of efficiency driving electricity down in most areas across economies, um, the actual global demand for electricity over the next uh, 30 years will actually triple uh, due to sort of put, uh, electrification of vehicles, electrification of industry, using heat pumps in buildings, using green hydrogen as a feedstock for ammonia and, and so on. Um, but the, the other big side of that is is where that electricity is going to come from. Uh, obviously today we're sitting uh, with around 41% of our electricity coming from net zero sources. Uh, we think that by 2050 that's going up to 92% with just a tiny amount of gas left over. So obviously that's got huge implications sitting in a time where everyone's obviously worried about gas trading. Okay, now that's we're going to have to unravel all of that because most forecasters have the world's electricity, if not tripling, multiplying by two, and maybe two, two, two point something. And so you, you're saying that the um, the bulk of this is electrification. It's it's transport, industrial processes, storage, hydrogen, everything going through electricity at some point, which is why we've called it primary electricity, a bit of a play on uh, what the oil industry talks about primary energy. But this is more of a level playing field because when every, if everything goes through electricity, you can compare it, whereas other comparisons with primary energy are always a bit unfair on the oil side. They, they're positive if you're a fuel. How much would, is energy going to grow that's not related to electrification? Say, if you're looking at the electricity demand in quite a lot of developed countries at the moment, obviously that's starting to fall quite significantly, uh, and certainly flatline in countries like the UK, countries like Germany. So generally, if we're if we're projecting out to 2050, looking at the efficiency improvements in in the existing processes where we're using electricity, we'd actually expect to see electricity stay pretty much. I think we it was something around 27,000 terawatt hours that we'd expect by 2050, rather than 24,000 terawatt hours we've got today. So it would have been a, a very minor increase. So a, around sort of. So basically, the entire growth is going to be from these new industries. Um, around half of that growth is going to be from hydrogen as well. So when we're talking about electrification, we're also talking about uh, electrification through hydrogen. So obviously using electricity to produce green hydrogen and then use that potentially as a feedstock for oil refining for or for ammonia production, using that within uh, long duration transport and uh, using that to some extent within, within existing gas grids, although we do actually see electric heat pumps dominating that market um, due to their uh, advantages in terms of efficiency. Yeah, that, that was really interesting. So we did a, a study on heat and cooling earlier in the year, and then 
we looked at the numbers and just simply by adding this kind of um, that some of the heating would be reliant on uh, initially just 20% of hydrogen in the mix for home heating the amount of electricity that was then used to generate that green hydrogen was was really considerable and, and it upped the heating side of the equation uh, is is that going to be really economic to um, to create that much hydrogen and, and pump it into the gas networks? I mean, the sh- the short answer is is almost no, really. Uh, I mean, there was a report that came out this week that said that actually using hydrogen for heating will actually have a a negative impact on GDP um, in Europe. But the the interesting thing is that even though hydrogen, as we have it, will only be used for around twenty percent of home heating across the world, the actual electricity demand from hydrogen in the heating sector will outweigh that of the heat pumps. It's simply a fact of we actually the actual logistics of installing heat pumps in all of these buildings isn't necessarily there when they're actually already connected to a gas grid. So I think it's easy to think, oh yeah, we'll just put a heat pump in every building, but the actual cases of doing that, certainly in uh, certain climates where the temperatures outside might not be there or the actual infrastructure might not be there, then that's um, then that's where you sort of have those limitations and hydrogen if produced in excess, as we imagine that it probably will be, that's then whether that can then provide that use case in heating. Okay, so it's really about the falling price of hydrogen, making it available economically to more applications. So heat doesn't come first, it comes, it comes down the line. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think it's a preferable route for hydrogen. I think the, f- the first thing we really see with hydrogen is it being green hydrogen in particular, is it being used to replace these existing grey hydrogen feedstocks. The demand's there. There's going to be absolutely no harm in doing it, especially at a time when gas prices are so elevated and producing green hydrogen is going to be actually the most cost effective way of doing so. So the, the market's there, the way to, the cost of doing it's there. And then once obviously you've built the scale off of doing that, then that's when you see it become really economic in use of heavy transport, largely in things like steel making and cement making, which we go into detail in the report about. Uh, and then, yeah, potentially further down the line, heating uh, and use sort of seasonal storage within the power mix. Okay. Uh, anywhere in the um, annual primary electricity report, do we, do we consider it used as hydrogen back into power through turbines? Uh, to some extent, yes, we probably do. Um, I think that's it, although it probably will be a minority. I think when we see the fuel scale, uh, fuel cell industry scaled up, I think we'll, we'll see those commoditized and we'll see those become actually the most efficient way of producing electricity from hydrogen at scale. Um, while we're seeing companies like General Electric and Toshiba and Mitsubishi trying to push these gas turbines or hydrogen ready gas turbines as products that they're producing it's largely a way of them trying to save their existing businesses and trying to make use of their engineering teams that have been focusing on turbine design for the past 50-60 years so um, I think realistically again it's a case of an industry that's going to be completely shaken up by this move towards uh, clean fuels Okay so just to sum up then, the APE 2.0 report, it contains our forecasts on solar. It contains a, an annual, a global uh, wind forecast. It, inclu- it, it starts with all the generation and our forecast to the generation of the top um, 20 or so countries in the world that use the most electricity. And this is a single jigsaw of the entire energy generation market and um, and capacity market all built into a single set of um, of spreadsheets what do we think what do we imagine people are going to do with that 
I mean, if you're in the business of buying electricity, which everyone, pretty much everyone is, then it's of importance to you. I think um, you're looking at how your electricity is going to be provided. You're looking at where it's going to be cheapest to buy electricity, where it, potentially where you want to set up future factories as well. I think that's something that we're really noticing. Obviously, you're, we're in currently in a global energy system where we've got big suppliers. We've got Russia, we've got the Middle East, we've got the US really as exporters. But as we shift towards this system predicated on wind and solar, uh, the whole value of of your natural resources as a country changed changed massively. I mean, we're seeing that in the UK with with our access of offshore wind and the potential that that's providing. So it changes massively where where you should be operating your business. Obviously, um, producing something close to your source of electricity that's going to be massive, especially if you're going to become so heavily reliant on electricity. If you're a steel if you're a steel mill, for example, um, while it may have been fairly economic to to bring in loads of coal coal via a truck in the in the past now it's going to make sense to actually think oh actually i'm going to rather than wasting 10 percent of my electricity on transmission losses i'll actually build my my steel mill in the middle of uh, kazakhstan where there's, there's there's this massive uh wind complex so i think it's going to completely reshape these industries i have a related question which is um I was just thinking, like, how many countries are going to be dependent on on uh, imported hydrogen? So hydrogen that is produced in other countries, and does that mean that the countries that rely on imported hydrogen are just not going to be as competitive for manufacturing, like perhaps they already aren't, um, compared to the places like Kazakhstan, where you don't have to turn the electricity into hydrogen to transmit it, and so on? To some extent, yes, I think I think you're right there. Um, it's it's an interesting point because it's somewhat self-regulating, obviously if you're if it's going to be uneconomic to do the business in the country then you're probably not going to be importing the hydrogen anyway but i still think that when you're looking at the use cases of hydrogen across transport looking at it across uh heating and certainly across power power consumption uh obviously that's something that's very decentralized anyway uh, and that use is going to be there so obviously there, there will be these countries that potentially uh, lack natural resources to produce renewable electricity that become very dependent on hydrogen imports and we're already seeing that through through germany as we wrote about this week having to replace natural gas obviously they're going to be really dependent on hydrogen given the fact that they don't really have enough space for on onshore wind solar and offshore wind to actually fill their own power demand probably see the same in population dense countries in the east so japan and south korea but we'll see sort of the opposite in in countries that have huge land availability so the us for example probably will still be able to satisfy its own power demands canada will be able to go far far and above its own power, uh, its own power production, potentially the same as Russia, if it actually ever gets round to developing a renewable energy industry. Although it's years behind on that front. So we are forecasting the existence of hydrogen exporters. I think we have Australia and perhaps Chile in that role. Is there absolutely? Uh, Australia and Chile are, will be massive hydrogen exporters. Potentially countries in the Middle East acting as hydrogen hubs from renewable energy projects that are producing um, yeah, obviously electricity in, in North Africa, uh, bringing that electricity from North Africa to hydrogen production facilities in the Middle East and then pumping that hydrogen actually into Europe. I think Europe as a whole is likely to be a hydrogen export, uh, importer, probably with the exception of maybe the UK and Spain. Um, and yeah, well, it so- hasn't learned anything then, is it? You know, if it's going to be a, a, a net importer, uh, maybe a friendlier regime than Russia, but it, it, it's still going to be another regime. It gives it unfettered sort of economic power over over Europe if you continue to... Uh, I mean, the thing about Germany, you, you're talking about that as if it's running out of space. 
house prices in Germany are half the price uh, that they are in the UK. Uh, the reason is, and they're bigger, and the reason is they've got plenty of space. There's just some cultural issues around building uh, wind far any more wind farms on the land uh, or taking up farming space with, um, with solar panels. It's just, these are just cultural uh, objections, surely. Yeah, definitely. I think the other thing with Germany as well is that they're very, um, as, a, as a country, they're very manufacturing intense. So obviously they're going to have a large energy demand there. For Germany, while we potentially expect to see electricity demand falling from existing applications, it, there's going to be this huge push for green steel production and things like that. So uh, that's largely where this need for, for new hydrogen will come from. Um, obviously, th that's what we, we wrote about this week, and I, I think we'll probably talk about it later, is this need, is this potential shift towards hydrogen uh, much earlier than we expected uh, due to the fact that obviously they're trying to win themselves off Russian gas. I think it was by 2024 they announced this morning. So, Do you remember about two, three years ago we were talking about hydrogen and we couldn't understand how no one could see that, that it was going to accelerate and then keep accelerating and that that's the kind of growth market that, that, um, that it would become and no one else seemed to be able to see it. Now everyone's conscious of the amount of money being piled into winning the hydrogen land grab but three years ago it was like it didn't exist yeah exactly and i think there's still people who think that now obviously we're the the uh, we're only just seeing sort of the first wave of projects starting to come online um and sort of the acceleration is continuing to be accelerated obviously people were announcing electrolyzer targets for 2025 2030 last year and already 12 months later despite the fact that we're going through not the best economic time. They're already upgrading those those forecasts and those targets. So I think that I think it speaks it speaks volumes really about how these countries view hydrogen as a future uh, energy source. And I think it just shows the confidence is there, uh, and largely the technology is already there to actually pr to provide that power. So um, uh, on the point technology front, I mean we've been having a discussion this morning via email on some technical issues around hydrogen and people keep pointing out these obstacles in the way. There's obviously a massive learning curve to go through. Nobody has all the answers. Collectively, we don't even know all the answers. But if you apply that learning curve theory to hydrogen, it's going to become massively cheaper over a short space of time. Yeah, the, the irritating thing about these these objections, and we get them all the time uh, via email and via, um, via other sorts of communication, largely on LinkedIn actually, but is that people point to the issues that we we have with hydrogen now or have had with hydrogen in the past 10 years like uh, today we saw um today one of the emails came through talking about how fuel cells have to use hydrogen of a purity i think it was 99.999% and how that basically rules out using hydrogen in the pipeline to provide these fuel cells but if you look at any fuel cell developer at the moment that's what they're looking at reducing they're looking at reducing how pure the hydrogen is that they have to use as soon as you factor that into the equation then we are moving to a system where we can use hydrogen pipelines. So, and obviously, obviously, you can't judge anything to do with the future hydrogen infrastructure based on today's hydrogen infrastructure because we don't have any hydrogen infrastructure. And the hydrogen infrastructure we do have is very centralised, very much built around uh, oil refining and ammonia production. So, it's completely different to the sort of decentralised use we're going to see in ten years' time, twenty years' time, and certain, and certainly by twenty fifty. Well, um, people aren't used to. I mean, I always said this about the telecoms industry. If you take all the, the smartest technology PhDs on the planet and give them an incentive like you can make billions of dollars and then point them at a particular industry, suddenly 
an awful lot of complexity uh, gets tamed uh, and the problems were really difficult and mathematically almost impossible to solve uh, in for instance cellular telecommunications but they've all been solved and and they and it's really a matter of an economic incentive to solve it dragging the brightest brains into the problem arena and then and then letting them get on with it and it takes surprisingly short amount of time yeah absolutely a lot of these a lot of these are they're engineering issues and that's and and there'll be engineering issues that are solved pretty quickly okay and we've already written about loads of hydrogen projects in the world of academia that seemed to, you could the thousands of people working on this yeah there definitely are and a lot of them are very smart they're aware of the problems and at the moment that's all they want to talk about the problems but each of them is providing a solution somewhere they're finding oh i can just i can solve part of this problem and then they're reaching out and someone else can solve the other part and next thing you know it's an industrial process let's move on i was really interested on this story you've written uh andres about the uh the spot market for polysilicon because we we were we were talking about it you and i the other day and and going well it's stuck on 34 dollars per kilogram is that really going to be is that really the price that polysilicon is changing hands at uh, yes on the spot market but but you've you've discovered a bit more this week it's something that i hadn't really considered explicitly in its own right before i've just noted these long-term supply deals and thought oh that's interesting but there have been more and more and now it's reached two years of total supply is now bound up in these in these uh, contracts which is maybe a bit of a misleading way to put it because it's uh, so it's 1.4 million tons is now accounted for in all the long-term contracts that have been signed lately, and the annual production this year is probably going to be 700,000. Uh, but these agreements are spread over between two and five years, so I don't think everything is. So, is so that's about 40 percent of supply for five consecutive years. Hmm. Probably probably more than 40 percent right now because some are shorter than that. Yeah, and they'll continue they'll continue signing new ones as well. And I think I think the primary purpose of such an agreement is to make sure that you're not, uh, you know, you don't lose the game of musical chairs and you actually have some polysilicon to make solar, solar wafers and such like with. Um, but I would assume that it also serves a, um, a secondary aim. Uh, you get a more stable price, perhaps, because uh, all of these agreements that I could see, uh, they are based on monthly price negotiations. So it's based on the average selling price in the market, it's, but it's not the same. There is a negotiation involved. Okay, so so, there, and, and so you know, if if I'm going to buy twenty or thirty percent of your total output, that sets your mind at rest as a supplier, allows you to get on with what you do best, making the polysilicon, and therefore I'm prepared to give you a bit of a discount for that kind of volume for for the certainty it gives me. And and what you're saying is, yeah, we we can we understand that we can't probably can't quantify them contract by contract at an actual value. Yeah, I mean, typically they're reported uh, according to the current average selling price, but that's changing quite a lot, of course, as it has in the past year. And, uh, and, and like you say, right now, it's the buyers who are reassured by the existence of such an agreement. But we expect a glut uh, within two years or, or three years at the most because they're just building so many factories. And then you're back to the, the previous situation. Low polysilicon prices, high supply, and, and such a such a contracted agreement is then a benefit for the manufacturer. And, and these contracted agreements actually did exist back when the price was low uh, in like 2019. 
it's just there were fewer of them. Uh, so they've increased, but they, they still there's still serve a purpose point for both here, parties. Though, it's, it's something we always use the term visibility in business. How far ahead can you see your business running for? Where can you see the money coming from to run your business? And if you have a long-term contract, you have visibility, especially against someone with a, a good balance sheet, uh, a large um, uh, cash-dense balance sheet. So you know that you can go out and buy build the factory you know you can go out and buy the equipment to make the next production line and so you do because you it is a land grab so you um it gives you that confidence as a polysilicon manufacturer to make more and grab a bigger piece of the market and so it, it is important it's it, it, if if we are moving away from orders that are placed a few weeks ago and we're moving to a three four five year um planning platform that's like having a renewable revenue stream for five years and you can start spending it now and that i think accelerates the uh, so we've had questions about you know will all these factories get built i think that speaks to that and i think that says yeah most of them because we can afford to do it if it's such a land grab why haven't why hasn't there been any uh, well recorded activity in say well europe or the states i know you were talking about a new place in indonesia but why not the west i think it's just because we have high electricity prices what do you think Peter? <laughs> offloading the question from the expert <laughs> to the generalist yeah yeah um no i mean i yeah i can theorize same as you i mean electricity is it, it is an electricity intense business um the west is better at solving puzzles so if, if someone comes along and says oh, i can take several steps out of this chain i can produce a different type of uh, silicon i can do it in a different way and i can do it far more economically and um, that's that's what our university is our academia and our venture capital marketplaces give us and so it's it's rather than invest in just making the same old stuff the same old way um, I think you'll find all the investments are, are a little bit more out there. Uh, and, and we did we did an interview, uh, which you can see on our website, um, about this very subject of, um, of uh, growing uh, crystalline silicon um, from crystals and just um, uh, making, making wafers from that. So, But basically it has this very high marginal cost because um, you're using electricity to heat these... Um this machinery up to a thousand degrees to like just purge the silicon very gradually of all the impurities it's very power intensive and and, and because it's got that high marginal cost it's um it's basically a policy uh, a policy decision you either need to subsidize it like would have happened actually in in biden's build back better bill if that had been fully passed um or even if it still is who knows uh, <coughs> and <laughs> so indonesia probably has some kind of deliberate well, it, it it has some kind of deliberate state-run strategy to have a factory. I don't know if they'll necessarily go ahead fully with it and actually see it through. India, again, the other place where polysilicon is going to be built at some point, probably within the decade. Um, that, again, is a protectionist, domestic manufacturing uh, strategy. Yeah, I mean, if somebody big like Adani wants to make his own polysilicon, he's going to ask the government to please protect him from those nasty Chinese people that could flood the market with cheap imports. So, I mean, that's a reasonable request. Um, and uh, I'm sure he'll get, you know, he'll get that kind of incentive. I actually come to think of it, that the Indians have put in this 40% module 
uh, customs duty and 25% on sales. I, I hadn't really thought about it explicitly before, but they haven't actually put one on polysilicon yet. So no wonder the polysilicon is taking a while in India. It needs more protection. And uh, I just, just want to move on to the, the last story you want to look at. In fact, I just want to open this up. Harry and I were talking yesterday. Um, what we, we need, to, as we look at each country, um, the UK, Germany, France, they're all very different um, European problems, Italy in particular, and the, and the Eastern countries have a, a much more acute problem with Russian gas. How do they survive without Russian gas? How quickly? And I thought it'd be great to have a webinar. And if there's anybody listening now, you, you are invited to the webinar as, as a speaker. Um, so just pick up um, your, your email and send an email to me, peter at rethinkresearch.biz, if, you, if you'd like to be in on a webinar which discusses how each country, each of the large um, countries in Europe, can get off Russian gas the quickest. And that's something I think um, would be a very interesting, if we had a few experts on there, a few hydrogen experts, a few people from the oil and gas side to see how um, how that can be done because it, that's what the news is chasing right now uh, and one of the news stories that came up out of this was uh, your piece Harry about um, Germany um, relying on future a future hydrogen economy yeah so I mean the story wasn't necessarily about anything in particular uh, it was more of a an aggregation of several deals that we've seen this week so Germany Firstly, it was in discussion with Norway about building a new hydrogen pipeline between the two countries. Norway, obviously a country that is pretty much there in terms of providing its own um, uh, electricity in terms of renewables. If you're looking forward to uh, 2030, 2040, definitely with the potential for export, it's got a huge North Sea resource, a huge amount of land that it can put onshore wind on, So, uh, and a huge amount of hydropower as well. So... You're looking at these countries that will become, rather than petro-states uh, that we're used to, they'll become sort of electro-states and providing that, that amount of power from uh, through pipelines, through as hydrogen through pipelines as well. So uh, you've got Norway, uh, you've got the UAE actually announced uh, some uh, exports of hydrogen from, yeah, obviously the UAE into Germany. Uh, initially blue hydrogen, but obviously that's hopefully going to sort of lay the foundations for green hydrogen exports. Uh, we've seen several other companies as well within Germany actually signing their own deals. So RWE signed plans with um, Gassany and KFW to build a hydrogen port in the German North Sea. Uh, Siemens Energy also working on a project uh, for synthetic, green, uh, synthetic jet fuel based on hydrogen as well, which again, it just shows this sort of acceleration of this shift towards hydrogen in Germany. Um, it's it's really interesting, obviously, because we're, we're seeing these countries well we're just seeing a new focus placed on energy security right and i think that's the the buzzword we're, we're seeing very much in the mainstream media is how how can, uh, countries actually secure their own energy um and it while we're obviously looking for this the short-term push towards towards natural gas and the u.s obviously will be looking at its lips of the prospect to actually keeping its natural gas industry alive because it will be able to do that without without compromising its own net zero goals so it, as far as Joe Biden is concerned, it, it ticks both boxes in terms of pleasing the left and the right. But if we're looking at if we're looking at Europe in particular, then it's it's going to compromise itself if it does that. So it's, it's got to shift towards electrification and it's got to do it much more quickly. I think if you're going to invest in anything at this point, investing in HVDC transmission, because uh, that's going to be how the, the lines are redrawn somewhat in terms of uh, energy trading across Europe. Uh, and certainly 
with Europe and the rest of the world. So um, obviously this is, is coming from quite a Eurocentric point of view, but uh, obviously that is what the focus is on at the moment. So cheaper to um, export electricity than it is to support hyd- to, to export hydrogen, make the hydrogen with the electricity when it gets there. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, to some extent, I think that's that's definitely the way to do. It. I mean, obviously, if you're providing uh, hydrogen from Chile to Europe, which is is something that we've we've heard talked about, that's <laughs> not going to be that's not yeah. going to be a um, that's not going to be an HVDC transmission line. That's going to be through ammonia, and that's going to be tra- uh, that's going to be shipped around the world. So, I think that's another thing that that people will will be doing uh, and will be preparing in the next sort of five, uh, two to three years in terms of um, large scale projects for that. HVDC has the advantage in that it's actually been developed now. And as we just discussed earlier, hydrogen uh, infrastructure hasn't. Yeah, exactly. I mean, HVDC works and it works now. We've got projects that are already operating and we've got projects that are in in the pipeline that will be operating. I think if you're looking to uh, come up with a direct replacement for Nord Stream 2, then, yeah, having a an HVDC line between uh, Europe and Norway or Europe and Denmark or any of these other countries that are going to be producing excess power. Uh, I mean, Chile, Chile even suggested a, a cable all the way to Japan. It <laughs> but it, I, it just doesn't make sense well, to me. It may, it may not it make sense, so expensive. but um, I'd like to point out that um, the first undersea telecommunications cable from America to Europe was laid in... I think the 60s, but, you know, now it's commonplace. I think there are about eight of them. Um, It's, okay, an electric cable is very different from uh, a telecommunications cable, but not so different. I mean, it's expensive, and it's, they're they're very, you know, they're very vulnerable. A shark can't exactly bite through them, but, um, but, you know, they, and they, they they do have to put up with an awful lot of pressure under the sea, and that's that's a real technology. And I think when we were into the satellite era, we thought that we'd always have this um, transmission delay and two second delay around the world, and we, we we always thought that telecommunications couldn't cope with that, and it can, and and it has. So I think I think you know you've got to assume that the energy industry will do something like that. Someone will be crazy enough to try it, and they'll be successful enough to to create more crazy people. Yeah, definitely. I think if you're if you're if you're Chile and you're looking at a huge abundance of renewable energy that you're going to be able to produce in their in their um, especially the sort of their I think is is it the windy south and the sunny north? Andres, you're probably a better place than me to say this, but. Um, yeah, well, the windy south is a bit mountainous. Um, it can be done, but it's it's really the north. I mean, that place is amazing. It's the best solar. Uh, and realistically, if you're looking at where are you going to supply your power, most of the countries in South America at the moment have power demands that they can probably satisfy through their own their own means. So obviously, you're going to look to supply uh, that to the rest of the world, and maybe we will see an HVDC cable between uh, Chile and Japan. It certainly wouldn't be. I mean, if 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 there's nowhere else to sell the electricity, then it's going to be economic for. Uh, Chile to do that if that's going to be a project that's going to last 50, 60 years. So. Uh, it lasts a lot longer than that. <laughs> I mean, you're not going to build it and, and they have to build it again in 50 or 60 years. Uh, I would expect the it to be redundant enough to survive longer. But yeah, uh, that's, that's the thing. It's got to be more economic uh, than sticking it into some kind of chemical um, like ammonia, um, sticking it in a ship, taking it around the world, 
and then paying for the ship and then paying to convert it back into hydrogen. That that type of process is going to be, um, it could be too expensive for quite a long time. Okay, so you can go to the website, you can see, you can click energy, you can click forecast and data, and you can see the report that we've just put out, the APE report. It's not an inspiring title, but it is a global electricity model which takes in all the electrification that's coming in the next two decades. It's a lot of effort. Uh, I know our customers that already have it are very appreciative of it. And I know, as, as, it, as it doesn't sound particularly glamorous, um, it's still an essential piece of research. If you're forecasting your own energy needs as an organisation, you should be allowing yourself to uh, the luxury of buying into that report um, and checking our forecasts against your own or adapting your forecasts with our own and so that's a, an open invite um, again if anybody wants to email me peter at rethinkresearch.biz if they want to be on that uh, webinar we're planning to hold a webinar on how on earth do we get get europe unhooked from russian gas addiction so that, that's that's um, something else you might contact us about anything else email simon at rethinkresearch.biz and uh and ask him um even if it's just how much does this report or that report cost okay uh and with that um this is the end of the podcast thank you